You guys ready? I really like your hair, Alonka. I really do. That's going to be on tape, and everybody in the world's going to hear it. Everybody on the podcast site's going to hear that. It's on iTunes, right? Huh? It's on iTunes, right? It'll be on iTunes. Okay. Hey, when I was in seminary, uh, a really, really, really old, uh, crumply, wrinkly uh, guy came. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of guys like that in seminary, just crumply and wrinkly. And <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, well, uh, the rumor was he'd preached in every Christian church in the whole world. He looked like he was 2,000 years old. He had really long white hair and a long white beard. And, and uh, some of us suspected he might be Moses, but we were all afraid to ask him. <laughs> but, he, but he had a, a free-for-all Q&A session, which I'll never forget. And uh, one of the first questions a student asked him was, what is the greatest need in the modern church? And before the, the question was fully formed on the lips of the asker, the, the answer was echoing uh, off all four walls in the room. He said, God. God is the greatest need in the modern church. And the follow-up question was, well, if, uh, if you were going to be uh, a new pastor in a church, what would be the first thing you'd preach? <laughs> and, before, and before the questioner again had the words off his tongue, the answer was already echoing the room, God! This man's name was Richard Owen Roberts. Any of you ever heard of him? Richard Owen Roberts. I think he's still alive, although he's like thousands of years old. <laughs> he says, God. And then he, said, and then he said this. A correct view of God is the beginning and ending of everything that matters. And I just never forget that. I think he's right. Here's a man who knows <laughs> as much as any human being can know about the church the status of the church in the world. Obviously, this man is well-versed in the Scriptures. And I, I just love what he says. Man, we, we need God more than anything else. And so, I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. If I'm ever a pastor, if God ever gives me the privilege to be a pastor, that's what I'm going to do. And so, at the International Church of Milan, when we got here uh, back in '04, and we had just a handful of people, we spent uh, 15 or 16 weeks, and I just preached God. That's all I preached was God, who He is. We just took one long, intoxicating look at the biblical God. And I want to say to you, if you'll ever spend quality time studying who He is, studying the attributes of God, it'll rock your world. It'll, it'll, it'll change your, your world. It'll change your worldview. Um, it's just a liberating thing to concentrate on someone who's worthy. You know, instead of spending 99.9% .9 of your time thinking about yourself, and maybe you don't do that every day, right? But we have those days, don't we, when we're hopelessly self-consumed. What I want to challenge you to do is look at God and pursue the knowledge of God. It's very spiritually therapeutic because He can fill your heart up with awe and wonder and joy and delight. Five years ago when we were in that sermon series, we uh, just took a, a brief look at His transcendent eternality, His infinity, His solitariness, His I amness. Uh, God says, I am the everlasting God. I am the first and the last, Isaiah 41. Another thing we looked at was His glory and His majesty, His grandeur, 
his renown. And my, my all-time favorite, I think, is because you never hear it preached, is the beauty of God. Have you ever thought about the compelling, all-consuming beauty of God? If you've never heard a sermon on that, come on over to my house and I'll preach it to you. Okay? The beauty of God. Isaiah 46, the Lord says, I am God and there's nobody like me. Nobody's like me. We looked at uh, His holiness and His righteousness and His purity and His wrath. God says, I am holy, holy, holy. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We looked at uh, that aspect of God, Isaiah 6 and Deuteronomy 32. We looked at His goodness and His faithfulness, His loving kindness and His grace and His mercy. You guys know Isaiah 45. God says, there is no God beside me. I am a righteous God and a Savior. A saving God. <laughs> An incarnate, crucified, buried, risen God. And lastly, we looked at His sovereignty, His supremacy, His omnipotence and incomparability. Isaiah 46 says, uh, God says, there is no one like me. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Christian friend, do you know that? Do you know that you can be fearless in the world? Do you know that? Do you know that your God is sovereign over every minute detail? There's not one rogue molecule in all the cosmos. Do you know that? I want to ask you one. Do you know that? And if you don't, shame on you. You need to study your Bible. Okay? I'm just going to you know, reprimand you just, just slightly. If you don't know that, you need to study your Bible. The second thing is, not only do you need to know it, you need to be living like you're God's sovereign. You need to be living a bold and fearless Christian life. We're not to be timid and afraid in the world. This is Christianity. Jesus said it, John 17, 3. This is eternal life. What? That they may know thee. That's Christianity. Now I know, I know that we see a lot of different expressions of Christianity in the world. We've talked about it before. Many, if not most, are apostate. They've left the Word of God. But Jesus said it's not about dogma and orthodoxy and doctrine. These things are, I want to say, these things can be important. It's not about sacraments and ordinances. What it's about as I say to you many times, Christianity is about a relationship with the living God. That's what it's about. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know the... What did God say to Abraham? Did He say, Abraham, your reward will be your great temporal wealth. Did He say, Abraham, uh, the promised land will be your reward. Abraham, uh, Isaac will be your reward. What was Abraham's reward? Genesis 15.1 in the King James Bible. I love the translation in the King James. God says, I'm your reward. Let me ask you, Christian friend, do you believe that? Do you believe God's your reward? And again, I'm going to ask you, do you live like God is your reward? Do you believe God is your reward? And do you live like God is your reward? David Wells, a uh, great theologian in the States. In fact, Adam took a class under David Wells just uh, last semester. He wrote a book called No Place for Truth. And I just want to make a few observations from it and then we'll move on. But he critiques modern evangelicalism. He, he says we're theologically illiterate, basically. Most of the church is theologically illiterate. He goes on to say, you know, we're in love with chatty and weightless and entertainment-oriented preaching. He says our worship tends to be vacuous. means it has no content. And he calls this kind of, the God of this kind of worship, he calls slick and slack. 
And he says, you know, the most celebrated, celebrated pastors are simply the best pollsters and marketers. So it's a harsh critique of evangelicalism. But then he says this, in all of this man-centered, success-driven mentality, God has been pushed to the periphery. God has been marginalized. So what I want to say to you, Christian friend, uh, when you leave here and you go to a church, and you, you know, I, I, had a, I won't say, say her name, but she went, you know, she, she was in our church for a long time and she went back home. She says, Jim, I, I love my pastor and I love, I love the church and everything. But she says, you know, I listened to the sermon. I just want to know, when are we going to get to the God part? Because you know in modern evangelicalism, you know what? It tends to be almost all about you. And the preacher is going to preach all about you. And, and how, uh, you know, it's, it's right that it's all about you. And how many times have we said it in here? It's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. Right? It's about Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, don't go to a church like that, man. If, you, if, you're, if you're sitting under some guy and, and you know, it's just psychology and, and stuff like that, man, you need to find another church. You need to find somebody that opens up the Bible and preaches from the text. So Richard Owen Roberts is right. The modern church's greatest need is God. We need to, you know, we need to stand at Mount Sinai like the Old Testament Jews and tremble. You remember what happened when God came down on the mountain and, and uh, all the people heard Him speak? <laughs> you remember what they said to Moses? They said, you go talk to Him. I don't want to hear Him anymore. He's too awesome. You know, we've lost a lot of that. Sometimes we just need to be in awe of this awesome, awesome God. And I just want to challenge you. Don't you dare let God get pushed to the periphery of your life, Christian. Don't you dare let that happen. If that's happened, I'm going to call you to repent tonight. If God's out here somewhere and all the, 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 the activity of your life is right in here and God's way out here, I'm going to call you to repent tonight because you're all messed up. That's not the way a Christian's supposed to live. God is supposed to be the middle. God is supposed to be central. God is supposed to be the core. Let me make you three promises. If you go after God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'll make you three promises. <laughs> and I've experienced this. Some of you probably have too. You'll live deeper, wider, and you'll definitely have more fun. You probably didn't expect me to say the last thing, right? But let me just give personal testimony. The bigger you believe God, the more you step out in faith, the more He gives Himself to you. And what I want to say to you is, the more fun it gets. So don't you dare shrink back when God calls you to do a big thing. Don't you dare shrink back. Because you know God's going to come to you in that faith, that step of faith. God's going to come to you. And you're going to have more fun than you've ever had in your life. I promise you. Ask Karen, she'll tell you. It's fun when God shows up. When you've believed Him and boom. There He is. There He is. Utterly, utterly faithful. So, you know, you get to that place where, and I'm going to get to the text in a minute. I promise so, you know, you get to that place where, where uh, obedience is no longer uh, uh, an ought or should thing. It's, it's driven by desire. and You become like Peter. You know, you're in that boat and you see Jesus out on the water. And you say, Lord Jesus, if that's you way out there, you bid me come, Lord Jesus. You bid me come. This is, a, you know, this is how it should be for the maturing Christian. We should have an appetite for faith. We should have an appetite for it. We should be like Peter. We should be ready to get out of the boat. James is a faithful pastor and he's been, he's been preaching to his dispersed flock. We learned in James chapter 1, uh, he exhorts them to be doers of 
the Word. He says we need to think biblically. We need to, to think rightly about God. He says we need to, to bring the true knowledge of God to bear uh, in our lives. And as we've seen thus far, one thing I noticed about James for the very first time in this uh, study through it is that almost on every one of his exhortations, he builds it upon an attribute of God. He says, God's like this, you do this. And it's a little bit subtle, but it's implicit. And if you look, you can see it. James 1 verse 4, he says, God is generous. Hey, if you lack, if you lack wisdom, ask Him. He's a generous God. Chapter 1, uh, 1 verse 12, God is a faithful God, a promise-keeping God. He, he's a rewarding God. It's implicit in verse 12. Uh, 117, we talked about a week or so ago. God is infinitely good. 117 again, He is immutable. He never changes. He's eternally unchanging. Uh, James 1.20, He is righteous. James knows what every good pastor knows. You're only going to live your Christian life as big as you see God. You know, I told the morning congregation, if your God's this big in your mind, it's just, it, it may be a challenge for you to even make it to church if He's that big. But if, he, if He's this big in your heart and your mind, man, you have the liberty and the license to live as large as you want. You have no limitations. You have no limitations. If God is this big in your mind, and He should be, Christian friend, He should be. <laughs> because He's much bigger than this. He's much, much bigger than this. You know, uh, those men and women of Hebrews 11, uh, they lived those extraordinary lives. Was it because of the excellence of their faith? Or was it because of the excellence of their God? I bet you know the answer. It was because He is who He is, that they lived like they lived. <laughs> Man, I'm just going to keep challenging you. He is who He is, so you can do the Word. If you don't do the Word, that's your decision. But you can do the Word. Because the Word giver has empowered you to do the Word. So James is exhorting his flock to, to live out their theology fearlessly and extravagantly and radically doing the Word. Verses uh, 1 through 9 here. Jesus says that, uh, you know, we're not, to, uh, we're not to exercise our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. Then he talks about the rich man and the poor man that comes in. He says, hey, verse 3, you're not supposed to pay special attention to, to uh, the rich man to the, uh, and neglect the poor man. Verse 4, he says, if you do this, you've made distinctions. Look what he says here. And those distinctions have evil motives. Look at verse 5. God says, God chose the poor of the world to be rich in faith, the heirs of the kingdom. Verse 6, he says, don't you dare dishonor the poor man like this. It's the rich man who oppresses you. Verse 7, And do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And look at this, the royal law. What is the royal law of God? That you should love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do this, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, what does he say? Well, I don't like it too much. I think it's not a good thing to do. It's not an attractive trait. Maybe you, you should try a little harder not to do that. What does God say about it? Man, he's just flat out. He says, it's a sin. Prejudice, bias, favoritism, partiality. It's a sin. That's how God sees it. And look what he, what he says at the end of that verse. <laughs> You've made yourself a transgressor of the law if you practice partiality. If you practice partiality. It's, uh, 
it's one of those attributes of God that is not talked about much, but it kind of fits up under the umbrella of righteousness. God is impartial. God is utterly impartial. Right? God is utterly impartial. And He expects His children to live that way. A couple of weeks ago, Adam preached Deuteronomy 10, that great text. And you may remember that Moses is waxing eloquent about the godness of God. Let me just read it to you real quick. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, 17. Listen to what Moses is saying. All this huge God stuff. He says, man, God is God of gods and He's Lord of lords and He's the great one, the mighty one, the awesome one. And then right in there in the midst of all this huge stuff, He says, He's impartial. (laughs) You see how important this is? How important this is to the character of God and how important it is to the body of Christ? I mean, can you imagine? All this huge God stuff and boom, He's impartial. (laughs) I think that's important. I think that's important. 2 Chronicles 19.7 says, The Lord will have no part in partiality. Acts 10.35 says, God is not one to show partiality. So let me tell you what you already know about yourself and what I know about myself. When you meet someone, you pretty much size them up, don't you? Don't you pretty much size them up? Don't you look at them? And we're looking at what? Race? Education, economic class, wardrobe, general attractiveness. I mean, I guess the, the list is endless, etc., etc., etc. Don't we all as human beings have this tendency to size people up, stick them in a class? God says don't do that. Hey, let me tell you what else I know about you and me. God didn't do that when He looked at you. And He adopted you into His heart and kingdom. God didn't do that. <laughs> he wasn't looking at, at uh, the, the superficial things, right? He didn't size you up about you know, how you might be able to help Him or, or promote the kingdom. He didn't size you up like that, the way men size each other up. God didn't do that to us. And God is calling us not to do that to one another. We talked about it last week. We know we can't do the Word perfectly. And I had a a comment last week from somebody. He says, man, you're pretty hard on us. (laughs) And uh, I understand we can't do the Word perfectly. But that's where the the bar is. And we know we're not going to get there. We understand that. We understand that. But it's our drive and motivation and it's the direction of our life to, to, to be a word doer and to honor God. And tonight, God is telling every one of us in this room, I will, have, I will not have my children playing favorites. I will not have my children being prejudiced and biased and being partial. I will not have it. It's a sin. I want you to hear that tonight. I don't want you to ever forget it. This is God's Word. This is God's Word. God just flat out says it. Look what He says, verse 1. I will not have an attitude of personal favoritism in the expression of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, biased, prejudiced, partial Christianity is an oxymoron. We hit one about every week. It's an oxymoron. It's incompatible. It's incompatible. And uh, I'll say to you what I said to you last year sometime. I don't remember exactly what it was, but most of you could probably concur with this. You know, I know at least for me, it's easier to go to church back in the States because, you know, I can find a church just like me. I don't have to go with anyone unlike me. 
I can find somebody that thinks just like me, believes just like me, looks just like me, talks just like me, smells just like me, dresses just like me. You know, that's what churches in the States, at least where I'm from, tend to do. We all just kind of segregate off. I, I, I tell you, that's got to grieve the Lord. That's got to grieve the Lord. And that's one reason I love being in an international church. We've had 56 co countries come through this church in five years. Every conceivable denomination. And I love that. Because who is honored? Who is honored when people from 56 nations come together, decide to, to worship Christ as one, and, and really, and really de determine to love and serve one another? Who gets the honor in that? Who's magnified in that? The Lord Jesus is. The Lord Jesus is. I love diversity. I want more diversity. I love it. I want more of it. It's a big deal in our church. If you go out and look on our website, it actually says... Uh, under the stated values on how we live together, this is what the website says. We demonstrate an eager openness and extend genuine warmth to all people and avoid cliquishness. We quote Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Biased, prejudiced Christianity is an oxymoron and worse, God says it's a sin. God says, it's a sin. He says, man, you know, this, this guy comes in with a gold ring and, and man, that's, if, if you're making distinctions for him, verse 4 again, that's, that's, that's evil. God just, God just says it. He calls it evil. Verse 5 and uh, through verse, verse 7 there, he says, don't you dare dishonor the poor man. Don't you dare do that. Listen to what Paul says. You, you know the great text. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-28. <laughs> Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren. There aren't very many, uh, many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak thing of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised things of the world. God has chosen James says, don't you dare dishonor the poor brother or poor sister. Don't you dare do that. You know why, friends? <laughs> He's a son of the king. He's a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And oh, he will be ruling and reigning in the new heaven and new earth. He may not look like much right now. <laughs> but you're dealing with a prince or a princess. Okay? He's a child of the king. And, and, and James is reminding his dispersed flock, don't you dare dishonor the poor man. God has a lot to say about the poor. Just very briefly, Psalm 41.1, Blessed is he who considers the poor. Blessed is he. Proverbs 17.5, Whoever mocks the poor reproaches his maker, reproaches God. Proverbs 28.27, He that gives to the poor shall not lack. Proverbs 29.7, the righteous considers the cause of the poor. And we saw it last week in James chapter 1, verse 27. Do you remember what he said? He says, man, this is, this is true religion that we visit orphans and widows in their distress. Man, we're not supposed to dishonor the poor. We're supposed to serve them and love them. This is the message of James to us. The message of James. So whether the Christian is rich or poor or educated or uneducated, upper class, middle class, lower class, 
black, brown, yellow, green, blue, white. It doesn't matter. You're called to love them and serve them. This is the Word of God. You are called to love them and serve them. And what does he say here? What is the royal law? What is the law of God? To, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the law of God. It's the royal law. It's non-negotiable with God. You're supposed to be doing this. And I'm supposed to be doing this. Let me ask you. Are you consciously doing this? Is this a priority in your life? That you actually love your neighbor as yourself? Well, let, let's just stop and think. How much do you love yourself? We might could, I don't know. How much time do you, do you spend thinking about yourself as opposed to others? I won't ask you to give me a percentage. But if we're all honest, we think a whole lot more about ourselves than we do anyone else. And God's just saying, hey, my kids aren't supposed to be so self-absorbed. My kids are supposed to be, be loving their neighbor and serving the brethren in the body. Serving the brethren in the body. James says, this is the royal law, love. I like... Uh, I like what John MacArthur, in my studies, I was reading some of his notes, and I like what he said. Uh, he says, there is one legitimate kind of discrimination in the church. Can anyone think what it might be? I'll give you a euro if you know what it is. I'll bring you a candy bar from the U.S. There's, there's one legitimate kind of discrimination and favoritism and prejudice and bias in the church. You're going to love this. You're going to love it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let each one of you regard one another more important than himself. There you go. There you go. There's your favoritism. Everybody in the church is more important than you. <laughs> That's the Word of God. There you go. You can practice favoritism if you want. Everybody in the church is more important than you are. Okay? That's how God's children practice favoritism. That's how we practice favoritism. And I just want to reiterate. He's talking about uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. But I just want to go back and touch on what we talked a whole lot about last year. How are we supposed to love the brethren? Loving our neighbor as ourselves is one thing. But Jesus called us to love the brethren how? As He loved us. It's a different thing. It's a deeper thing. And I just want to touch on that just for a minute. Jesus said we ought to, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And I've told you many times, this is not a call to martyrdom. It's a call to live for the brethren. It's a call to spend yourself loving and serving the body of Christ. Now let me ask you, Christian friend, is, is that characteristic of your life? Are you expending yourself to love and serve the body? This is what we're called to. This is what we're called to. To expend ourselves loving and serving one another. Loving and serving one another. Giving ourselves away. You're more important than me. If we really believe... What a cool church we would be if we all caught on to that. We'd be an awesome church. People would travel from miles to come and worship with us. Man, those people really love each other. <laughs> and I know we've talked a lot about this. But what a cool church we'd be. i got a confession to make. Is it okay if I make a confession? You know, I was laying on the couch last night. I was really tired. My allergies were killing me. I worked all day getting the sermon ready. You know, I was really tired. I just wanted to lay down. 
with my wife. She's all cuddly, and I like to lay down with her. And she's all cuddly, and she, you know, she's just she's very cuddly, <laughs> very cuddly. And so I just want to lay down and, and watch a movie with her. You know, we just turned the movie on, and it looked pretty good. You know, so and the phone rings, <laughs> and it's Adam. And uh, he says, "Man, my car broke down." I said, "Well, call me in the morning." <laughs> no, no. I said, "Really?" He said, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, well, figure out what you want to do and call me back. So he calls me back. He says, man, I need you to come. I said, okay, I'm coming. You know, my first inclination was in my flesh. Man, I want to lay here and cuddle with my wife. But I knew what I needed to do. I knew what I ought to do. And the more I thought about it, I desired it. Because Adam said, oh, he kept thanking me and thanking me and thanking me. You know, oh, thank you. I said, don't thank me, man. I did it for Jesus. You know, because when you do it unto the least of these, what? You do it unto me. And I said, man, is there a lesser Canadian than you? <laughs> is there a Canadian less than you? I said, I do it. I do it. I'm doing it to honor Christ and because I love you, brother. And, you know, you know Christian love is always, you know, it always comes at an inconvenient time, right? You know, <laughs> it's always inconvenient. It's never easy. But friends, when the phone rings, you need to go. You need to drop what you're doing. You need to go. This is Christian love. This is how we're to, to love and serve. Love and serve one another. Verse 9. Let me just touch on verse 9 one more time. God says partiality, it's a sin. <laughs> it's a sin. He says, it's, uh, you're making yourself a transgressor of the law. And you might say, well, Jim, this is pretty harsh language for a little impartiality. Wrong. God hates all sin. And, and God is, is impartial. <clears throat> this is James's point. Every time he makes an exhortation, we're, standing, we're not standing on some dead dogma. We're standing on the living God who's impartial. And he says, I'm calling you to be. I'm calling you <clears throat> to be impartial as well. And so James gives us a little refresher course on the law. Just a little refresher course. Verse 10 and 11. Look real quick with me if you would. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of what? What does the text say? And if you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all the law. Verse 11. For he who has said do not commit adultery has also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. MacArthur, John MacArthur gives a great uh, illustration here. I just want to share it with you. He says, you know, doing the law is not like bowling. It's not like, man, some of the pins fall down, but some of them stay up. So, you know, you get credit for the ones that stay up. That's not how it is. He says, keeping the law, it's like a pane of glass and sin is like a hammer. And once you swing that hammer, the pane of glass is shattered. You can't just barely break a piece of it. It's shattered and you're guilty of breaking it all. That's a great illustration. And that's what the Bible is saying. Hey, if, you're impartial, if you practice impartiality, you're just like the adulterer and the murderer. And we understand that not every sin is equally heinous. We understand that. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But you're as guilty under the law. If you practice partiality and prejudice and bias, you are guilty under the law. You're as guilty as the adulterer and the murderer. This is what James is saying to us. I like the message paraphrase in verse 10. You can't pick and choose in these things, specializing in keeping one or two of God's laws and ignoring the others. 
man, I know Christians like this. <laughs> you know? Uh, well, I'm not doing the big ones. You're guilty of sin and you're a transgressor against the law according to the Word of God. According to the Word of God. And then verse 12 and 13 very quickly. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. I love that phrase. Verse 13, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 12 basically is a reiteration of what we talked about last week over in chapter 1, verse 22, where he just said, hey, be doers of the word. Do the word. If you don't do the word, if you just hear the word but don't do the word, he says you've deluded yourself. You come over here in verse 12 of chapter 2 and he says, hey, do the word. He says, do the perfect, do the law of liberty is what he's saying. And what I want to say to you, Christian, I love this phrase. This is the second time in, in the book of James that, that he's used this phrase, the law of liberty. It's just a synonym for the word of God. Do you realize, oh, you're free never to be prejudiced again. <laughs> you know, when, when God came down and he borned you again, when he, when he borned you from above, when you were begotten of God, he rewired you. Yeah, I know we struggle with things, but you're rewired, man. It's in your DNA to be impartial now. It's in your DNA. Your son or daughter of the king, it's in your DNA. You've been rewired. And God expects you to live like you've been uh, rewired. You're not to be partial. You're, man, you're free. You don't have to be prejudiced like the world anymore. You're free. The whole world doesn't understand how not to be prejudiced. You do. You don't have to be prejudiced anymore. In fact, you're putting that down, right? You're putting that down because that displeases God. God says it's a sin. And it makes you a transgressor under the law. You're free not to be prejudiced anymore. And what does he mean here? Uh, here in verse 13, uh, that... Uh, Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Well, he's obviously talking about an unbeliever. And, you know, being in ministry for 20 plus years now, um, I see, I've seen this a lot. And one sure way I can tell that a person's profession of faith is most likely false is that he has no mercy. Is that he gives no grace. How, how could we, who've received infinite mercy from the omnipotent, merciful God, not extend mercy. You know, when, when I see someone in their life that is unwilling to forgive, is unwilling to give mercy, is unwilling to give grace, that, that calls into question, at least in my mind, their profession of faith as a Christian. And those who do not practice mercy will receive no mercy on the last day. They will receive perfect justice, but they will receive no mercy. And where does perfect justice take the human being outside of Christ? Where does perfect justice take the, the man or woman who's outside of Christ? Where will it take that man or woman? It'll take us to hell. It will take us to hell. So, God is saying, God is saying that uh, the one who shows no mercy shall receive no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. I love this. There's a sense in which Certainly the mercy of God triumphs over judgment, but there's also this sense in which the, the mercy, the mercy that, we, that we show in this life triumphs over judgment. How is that so? Well, if, we, if we're extending mercy and, and we are impartial and we're living like we're born again, right? We're living like we're born again. We're giving evidence. 
that we belong to God. And it's just God's work through us and it triumphs over judgment. It just shows that, that God is completing the good work He's begun in us. I don't know if I am communicating that well. But our, our mercy triumphs over judgment because the mercy we extend is simply the mercy of God flowing through us. It's evidence of our regeneration. It's evidence of our conversion. So Richard Owen Roberts is right. The greatest need in the modern church is to know God. And that's what you know, James is saying. Every time he exhorts us, he builds it on an attribute of God. The Christian's life of faith and his walk of obedience will always be built on God. Again, if your God's this big, you're lucky if you can get to church. You know? It's, just, you know, it's, it's a long way. It's kind of a hassle. I'd, maybe we should just do something with the family. I mean, you can think of a thousand excuses. It's like I told you last week. Man, you know, do you just land here if it's convenient or do you build your whole week around it? To come and be quick to hear the Word of God. Friends, we've got something precious here. <laughs> we've got something precious here. We need to be hearing the Word and being built up by the Word and then going out and sharing the Word. You know, God's not to be marginalized in our life. He's not to be marginalized in our life. So God is unapologetically calling His children to do the Word. Not because we are who we are, but why? Because He is who He is. We can be Word doers because He is the Word giver. And God says, Beloved, do not hold your faith in My awesome Son, with an attitude of personal favoritism. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we thank You for this exhortation. We love Your Word. You always challenge us and uh, exhort us and many times convict us of what we need to change in our life. But thank You for Your faithfulness, Father. Not to let us sim simply languish in sin, but you're calling us out of that. And Lord God, may we be a church that never practices partiality, that never practices prejudice and bias. Lord God, may we be a, the kind of church that uh, magnifies the, the glory of the gospel and that all become one in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we want to be a church like that. We want to be a church that that loves and serves one another. Lord, teach us how to, to love each other like this. Teach us how to serve one another. Teach us how to, to take care of one another. Thank You for this great exhortation, Father. And thank You that we can do the Word because You are the Word giver. We're not just standing on empty dogma. We stand on the rock. We stand on the living God. And I pray You will empower us to live these last few days we have on the planet with great power and great boldness for the glory of Your Son, in whose name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Ancient words ever true.